Well, have you ever found yourself in an impossible situation? I'm talking about the kind of situation where you know for sure that if God doesn't show up for you, then you might as well just throw in the towel because you're done for. That's the kind of situation that Joshua finds himself in today. Israel is moving deeper into the promised land, but it has not been completely easy for them thus far. I mean, they knew from the very beginning that they were up against some overwhelming odds. I mean, their own 12 spies who they'd sent in to kind of scope out the land ahead of time had come back with a scary report. The land was filled already with great, big, strong men. Their cities were walled fortresses. Their militaries were far superior. Joshua knew that he was going to have to completely rely on God. And God had told Joshua numerous times that if he would follow his commands and do what he said, he would be with him and the victory would be his. But as we know, that's not as always as easy for us to do as it may sound. Joshua and Israel had experienced both some highs and some lows so far. They'd crossed the Jordan with a miracle parting of the water. The Lord himself appeared to Joshua near the camp at Gilgal and gave him instructions on how to defeat and demolish the first city that was standing in their way, Jericho. They followed God's plan, marched around the city, walls collapsed, and Joshua won a decisive victory. But one of the men of Israel, named Achan, acted unfaithfully. He took some of the devoted things from Jericho and kept it as booty of war for himself. God had given strict instructions not to do this, and so Achan brought disaster on all of Israel in their next battle against the city of Ai. And when Joshua found out from the Lord what had happened, Achan brought disaster on himself and his family and everything that he owned. And so the sin of Achan removed and Joshua led Israel into battle against the city of Ai again at the Lord's command. And this time they won the battle and destroyed the city of Ai. And so by now they have a couple of decisive victories behind them. Well, as you can imagine, this caused the other kings in the nearby city-states to get nervous. And they began to band together to plot war against Israel. But there was a certain town named Gibeon, and they did not join in with the other cities against Israel. You see, they had a plan of their own. So they sent emissaries to Joshua, disguised as weary and worn-out travelers who had been on a long, long journey 
from a distant land. They packed their donkeys with worn-out sacks and old wineskins that were cracked and mended. Their food supply was dry and moldy. And they arrived to see Joshua in his camp and said, We've come from a distant land. Make a treaty with us. But Joshua asked, How do we know that? Maybe you live nearby. We're not supposed to make treaties with the people of this land. God said not to. And then Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? Joshua 9, beginning in verse 9. They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. The bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now, see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. You see, Joshua and the leaders of Israel were duped by these fake emissaries from Gibeon. They were tricked by surface things that they could see, like the old provisions being offered as proof. Instead of relying on God's command not to make treaties with any group of people who were already living in the promised land, or even inquiring of the Lord, you know, praying to the Lord about this one specific instance in which they were now standing and needed God's guidance. But the thing is, they made an oath. And just because they were tricked by the Gibeonites didn't nullify the oath. You see, God takes our oaths and promises very seriously. And making one mistake does not justify making another one. And so Joshua and the Israelites were bound to keep this oath that they had made. They would protect the Gibeonites and not kill them. But as punishment the Gibeonites would forever be the Israelites' slaves, performing the work of woodcutters and water carriers for them. And so by now, the Israelites, under God's direction and led by Joshua, have moved in a pattern that kind of formed an arc that was a few miles north of Jerusalem, from Gilgal to Jericho to Ai and now Gibeon the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, he's in a panic. 
His city's security is being threatened. He can see the handwriting on the wall. And so Adonai Zedek reaches out to the other Amorite kings, and they decide together to attack Gibeon to punish them for making a peace treaty with Israel. Joshua 10, verse 5. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Well, the fact that all five kings had banded together was actually a benefit to Joshua because now, instead of waging war against one individual city after another individual city, Joshua had the chance to break through and capture all five cities at once. He sees the advantage of this military strategy, and he capitalizes on it. He also shows great integrity for keeping the oath that he had made with Gibeon. I mean, he could have still been angry and unforgiving of the Gibeonites for tricking him into making that treaty. He could have dragged his feet in helping them. He could have just sat back and watched the Canaanites fight among themselves. But instead, he followed through on the promise he'd made and quickly set about to help Gibeon. Verse 7. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Haran and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Haran to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites." gathering his army of men together, Joshua marches the 25 miles from Gilgal to Gibeon under the cover of darkness. And this march is not an easy march. There is an ascent of 4,000 feet up steep and difficult terrain from Gilgal to Gibeon. The Israelite army would have been tired as dawn broke and they neared Gilgal to surprise the armies of the five kings. Joshua could not have won the victory if the Lord had not been on his side. Joshua did his part, but God did his part too. You see, Joshua and his men marched all night prepared for battle. The Lord 
told them not to be afraid because he had already given the battle into their hands. Joshua attacked and surprised the enemy armies at dawn. The Lord threw the enemy armies into confusion. Joshua won the victory at Gibeon. The remainder of the army began a hasty retreat from Gibeon back to their home cities. But Joshua's army chased them all the way in hot pursuit as they fled. And then the Lord rained down large hailstones from heaven. And more enemy soldiers were killed by the hail than had been killed by the sword. But the battle isn't over yet. And Joshua knows that he needs more time to finish off the battle, to get the job done. He needs more daylight for his armies to be effective. And so Joshua prays a great, big, audacious prayer. Verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son Stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. Now I think if Joshua had prayed that prayer today, he might have prayed something like this. God, I need you to step into the time-space continuum and I need you to press the pause button like you're watching this battle unfold on your heavenly DVR. But the verse goes on to say, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. That's amazing. This is one of those miracles that defies explanation. But then again, most Miracles defy explanation, don't they? That's what makes them miracles, right? Somehow, God slowed down the rotation of the earth so the sun was delayed going down about a full day. And in doing this, God also stopped all the cataclysmic catastrophes that should have occurred from happening. No mention of everything flying off the earth and into space. No mention of horrible tidal waves wiping out everything because the moon was stopped in its tracks. The same God who has the power to create the sun, moon, and the earth has the power to make the sun stand still in the sky. God fought for his people. God listened to Joshua's prayer and he acted on it. And as I was thinking about Joshua's great, big, audacious prayer, I wondered why we don't often pray 
these kinds of prayers to God. Big, bold prayers. I think our prayers reveal a lot about what we really believe about God. I mean, if we think that God isn't really all that powerful, we'll pray some pretty wimpy prayers to God, like, dear God, if, if you can help me, I was hoping that you might help me do well on this presentation. Or if we think that God is remote and removed and doesn't really care all that much about us, We'll only pray those kinds of rote prayers with a lot of these and thous and a, a whole lot of language that kind of keeps God at a distance because that's where we think God is. And if we think that we're the center of the universe and that God only exists to give us what we want and that prayer is kind of like a big giant vending machine in the sky, then we're going to pray a lot of me-centered prayers. God, give me this. God, give me that. But if we understand that God is faithful and consistent, then our prayers will be faithful and consistent because we know that God will answer them in that way. And if we know that God is real and that we really have a deep relationship with him, and if we fully understand how deep God's love is for us, then our prayers will also be real and deep and full of our love for God. Part of the problem is that we have a hard time believing that God is really all that interested in us. Sometimes I think we can't comprehend that the creator of the universe is interested in us. That he cares about all the everyday, mundane, problematic stuff that we face each and every day of our lives. But when you discover fully how much God really cares for you, then prayer is no longer a problem. If you find that prayer is something that you don't look forward to, it might mean that you haven't fully grasped yet the height and depth and breadth of God's love for each of us. Prayer starts with asking. Is there something in your life that you are lacking right now simply because you've never asked God for it? Oh, maybe you've tried some other ways to do it yourself, but you've never asked God? Then ask. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. It all starts with asking. And I believe that God wants to give good things to his children. Jesus said, what father among you, if his child asks for a fish dinner, will give him a rattlesnake instead? If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will a loving heavenly father 
give good gifts to those who ask him. Think about it. It's a great feeling, isn't it, to be able to give good things to your children. As a dad, I love to do that. And so if we, who are imperfect people, know how to give good gifts to our children, just imagine how much more so our perfect God knows how to give good gifts to his children. So Joshua asks, doesn't he? And it's a huge ask. I want you to take note of the fact that Joshua, the Bible says that Joshua prayed this prayer in front of all Israel. I don't know about you, but I probably would have prayed this prayer in the privacy of my own room so that no one would have heard me just in case God laughed at me or if God decided not to answer my prayer. But not Joshua, not Joshua. Joshua is crazy bold. He asks in front of Israel. He's not shy in asking. He doesn't even bother to add that old loophole way out at the end of his ask. You know the one, God, please let the sun stand still if it is your will. He doesn't say that because he already knows that it's God's will. He knows it because God told him so. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. The Bible tells us a story about a man who one day brought his sick son to Jesus and said, if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And then Jesus replied, if you are able, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed the man's son. Faith is the belief in the power of God to work miracles. But it's more than believing God can do it or that God might do it. It's believing that God will do it. And it's not based on how good you are or how often you come to church or anything else. But it's based on your faith. When you know that something is part of God's plan, Pray bold prayers. God likes the prayer of radical trust that believes he will do the impossible. The greatest faith is to believe that God listens to our prayers and that to pray with holy boldness and then leave the results to God. In Acts chapter 4, there's another story about the early believers who prayed a big audacious, holy, bold prayer. Peter and John had been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel and for healing people. But the authorities couldn't hold them forever, and so they tell them specifically to stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Beginning in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. What a great prayer. I'd like to think I'd pray a prayer like that. But sometimes I wonder if I'd just been let out of prison for preaching Jesus. And if I'd been warned not to do it again. If my first prayer wouldn't be, Lord, help me stay out of trouble. <laughs> but not these believers. Not these believers. They pray for more boldness. They pray for more signs, more healings, more wonders, more miracles. And why? Because they know that God is sovereign, that God is over everything, that he's got everything right in the palm of his hand, in his power, in his control. And they know that their lives are in God's hands. And so they pray with great boldness because they trust God for everything. What would happen if our prayers were as bold as those early believers? What would happen if our prayers were as bold as Joshua's? Whatever it is that you most need to pray about today, Pray with boldness to the Lord of heaven and earth. For God is sovereign over everything, including every single one of our needs. And so we can pray with boldness. He is listening. He wants to hear from you. And he is ready to answer. Let us pray. God, we come before you today with holy boldness, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, the sovereign Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Lord, we lay our greatest need before you, whether for ourselves or someone we love or for the needs of the world that you love so much. And we ask and pray with holy boldness that you would do what only you can do and move heaven and earth, even if it means them standing still, to answer the prayers of your people. God, be glorified in the prayers of your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.